I think we can go ahead and, and get started this morning, so let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll get started. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you, Lord, for the folks that are here and um, have taken the time to come and gather as we look into church history, Lord, and see how you have preserved your church and how um, your word and the impact that your word has on us as um, your children, Lord. Just the power of it um, is amazing. And so, Lord, I pray that we would not ever find ourselves um, hiding your word in the sense of not reading it and understanding it. We can hide it in our hearts, Lord, and you can use that to continually impact us and other people. Um, but may we never let it go by the wayside as, as has done, been done several times in history. And we thank you, Lord, that you um, indwell us with your spirit. You help us. Um, we thank you for the fellowship of believers. We're so grateful. And we give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So last week, um, we started looking at the Protestant Reformation, and specifically, we focused on Martin Luther. Um, and I said it before, there, there are so many, so many people that we could look at in terms of the Reformation and have probably multiple weeks of study on, um, but we don't have that kind of time. So again, this is an overview. Um, and so we talked about um, Luther's contributions to the Reformation of the church, and he, along with uh, other reformers, came to their convictions because of the Word of God, as we were just talking about. Um, God was transforming their lives by the true gospel, and, and in a sense, there's no turning back at that point. The, the, the floodgates were open, and um, the Word of God was going forth and getting into the hands of more people, um, and things would never be the same. And uh, they could not argue with God's Word, with what God's Word said about salvation. And so they had to disagree with the Pope and the Roman Catholic teachings that had been held for so long. Now that the Word of God is there and they're seeing, their eyes are being opened and they're seeing what they had been missing and what they had been being taught that wasn't accurate, um, they had no choice but to... Uh, resist those teachings. Um, and we talked about Martin Luther. We talked about how Romans 1.17 impacted his life. Uh, that verse says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And this is what God used in, in Luther's life to convert him or to save, and to save him. Um, they would use passages like Acts 13, 38, and 39, which says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from, the, from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. You see, they would, they would take those verses, and of course those uh, and other familiar passages in Romans and Ephesians and Galatians and more, so many scriptures absolutely refuting the idea of salvation by works. Right? The, you have the scriptures, you open them up, and you can't help but see, as God shows you, that salvation is not by works. It's not by anything that we can do. Um, you know, looking at the, the false doctrine of, of purgatory, and it can't stand up against biblical truth, like Luke 23, 43 we know that story of Jesus on the cross and the thief, and he says, it says, and he said to him, truly I say today, uh, to say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Right? Not sometime in the future after you've paid for your sins. That's literally what Jesus is doing right there. And turn with me to Luke 18. Luke chapter 18, and we'll look at verses 9 through 14. And this is a familiar passage, a familiar parable to you, um, where Jesus talks about the Pharisee and the tax collector. 
Luke 18, verse 9. He also told this parable, parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So, you can see a difference there from what had been being taught. Jesus being very specific there. So, the reformer that we're looking at today would write, quote, Justified by faith is he who, excluded from the righteousness of works, grasps the righteousness of Christ through faith, and clothed in it, appears in God's sight not as a sinner, but as a righteous man. And he said this, We are justified before God solely by the intercession of Christ's righteousness. This is equivalent to saying that man is not righteous in himself, but because the righteousness of Christ is communicated to him by imputation. And we talked about, a bit about that last week, but these are, are both quotes from John Calvin. And so we'll look at John Calvin today um, as the reformer that we'll focus on for the day. And he, John Calvin was born in France in 1509 in a town about 60 miles northeast of Paris. And, and John Calvin was 25 years younger than Martin Luther. So they, they were living at the same time, though he's, um, he was uh, quite a bit younger. And by the time he was a teenager, he began, to, began studying to become a priest. Um, he studied theology in Paris uh, from 1523 to 1528. But he, like many, uh, became disillusioned with Catholicism. And he decided to switch and study law. Um, and Calvin was not converted until 1533, and he would never go back to the Roman Catholic Church. Um, and this, Calvin would be used by God as this ex-Catholic, as sort of a second generation of reformers, right? Because he is younger than, so much younger than Martin Luther, but still around the same time. But he's the new next generation coming up. Um, and since life was very difficult for ex-Catholics in France due to, again, to persecution, which was happening all over the place, not just in France, um, Calvin left for Switzerland to a town called Basel, um, which is right on the border where Germany and France and Switzerland meet. So there's a, there's a part where they all kind of come together in one place, and that's where that was. And he, he intended to just live a quiet life doing his own private scholarly work. That was, that was his intention, what he wanted to do. Um, and he, <clears throat> during this time, was already a published author. Um, but his plans to sort of live the, the quiet life um, of scholarly work um, weren't to be. Uh, is around the time of 1536. Um, he's passing through Geneva, Switzerland, and he met a man named William Farrell. And Farrell was a, another of the reformers, uh, and he would be instrumental in, in sort of pulling Calvin in um, to what was going on. He, he was really impressed with Calvin. Apparently, he was very impressive, even as a young man. Um, and he knew, Pharrell knew that Calvin would be useful, would be helpful in the cause. And um, he wanted Calvin to stay, and Calvin didn't want to stay there in Geneva. Um, so he sort of threatened him in a way. Uh, he warned Calvin that God would curse him if he didn't stay in Geneva and help lead the Protestant church there. And he apparently was very convincing because Calvin decided to stay. Um, but anyway, so also in 1536, Calvin published the first edition of what he called the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Um, the first edition had six chapters, and this was 
pretty early on viewed as one of the finest Protestant systematic theologies that had been written. Um, and so, I don't know, maybe some of you have heard of Calvin's Institutes. <clears throat> he wrote the Institutes as a defense um, of the Protestant faith and with a desire in, in sending them to the French king to, to sort of help perhaps with less persecution. Like, maybe you can agree to let us do this um, without all the persecution. But he was writing those to, to defend the stances of the reformers, um, uh, the biblical positions that they were taking. And these, were, these institutes were centered around the, the theme of knowledge, the knowledge of God. And among other things in there, he wrote about salvation. He wrote about the Christian life, about sacraments, um, the function and life of the church, and the Apostles' Creed. And there, there were many other things that he, that he wrote about there. And those, those institutes would expand beyond that. By, by 1559, Calvin finished his third edition. Um, and that would be 80 chapters. You know, so way beyond the, the original six chapters. And in writing about the Institutes, um, author Nathan Feldmuth said, This meticulous work is the doctrinal anchor for Reformed theology and has had a profound effect on Presbyterianism, Puritanism, and various Reformed churches worldwide. Yeah, Baba. If anyone's interested in the Institutes, it is uh, well worth reading. It is also an epic read. I mean, they're about that thick. So even just reading one section of it is, is quite beneficial, and we have a copy of it in the church library. Yeah. Yeah, and so Calvin and Pharrell, would, they would work to reform the church in Geneva and more of French-speaking Switzerland. Um, not everyone agreed with them and their sort of the the rules they set up for the church and the way they, they wanted to do things. Um, among other things, in 1538, Calvin wanted the church to have authority to fence off the Lord's table, so communion. Um, he hated the idea that people would be permitted to partake in the Lord's Supper when they're living in open and unrepentant sin, um, like, like everyone knows kind of thing. Um, and so he, he hated that idea that people would be, would be doing that, taking the Lord's Supper in that way. Um, and so he wanted to exclude them from that. And biblically speaking, that's not a bad idea. You know, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. <clears throat> so these aren't just things he's coming up with off the top of his head because he doesn't like people or something like that. Uh, he, his concern was for um, people not taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. But eventually, uh, Calvin and Pharrell were run out of town. Uh, Calvin ended up in um, Strasbourg, which is further north on the French and German border. And Calvin was there for three years. And while he was there, he, he pastored a French-speaking congregation. He did a lot of lecturing um, at the Theological Academy. Also during that time, he would uh, get married. He would marry a widow uh, who um, already had two children. He, uh, they would also have a child together, but their child would, um, would die as an infant. Um, and even, even with that hardship in his life, he would later consider that time that he spent in Strasbourg as a time of peace and growth. Um, so all the work that he was doing there, all the time he was spending there preaching was a time that he, he viewed as a great growth and, and a time of peace. Um, he, while he was there, published um, his, a large commentary on the book of Romans, as well as his second edition of the Institutes. And after his wife died in 1549, they, they had only been married nine years, and uh, he, he would never marry again. And interestingly, after those three years, the city of Geneva actually called Calvin and Pharrell to come back. Remember, they had, they had run them out, and now they call them to come back to the city. And Calvin famously went back to the church and began preaching and picked up 
in the text right where he left off three years earlier and, and picked up and kept, and kept going. While he's there, he preached uh, more than 2,000 sermons. Um, he would also spend the rest of his life there in, in Geneva. Among other things there, he also helped start a system of charity for people, uh, for poor people, and a public sewer system. Uh, there's other things he was involved in. Also, the uh, Geneva Academy was started there by Calvin with the goal of training pastors for pastoral ministry, um, and that would later become the University of Geneva. And in 1555, um, there began to be an influx of Protestant refugees um, to the area from England. They were fleeing from the brutality of, of Queen Mary uh, I as she engaged in extremely harsh persecution of Protestants. Um, you guys know what nickname was given to Queen Mary because of this brutality? Yeah, Bloody Mary, right? It's not just a drink. Uh, and Calvin had a, a great influence over a lot of people, including many of the leaders in that group of refugees that would come. There were, there were church leaders, and he would have a lot of influence over them. They would study with him there. Uh, eventually then, as, as persecution would let up, they would go back to their homes and bring this um, reformed teaching with them. And in that group... Uh, was also a man, a Scottish preacher named John Knox, who would take that theology back to Scotland, and through his efforts there, um, we have what we know as uh, Presbyterianism. Um, Calvin had some controversies in his life. Uh, probably the most well-known and maybe the most often mentioned is one surrounding a man named Michael Servetus. And Servetus was a, a major heretic. Um, his theology was like, um, I don't know if you guys did this when you were kids, but you go to the restaurant, you know, you have the fountain drinks, and the kids, we always called it a suicide, where you, you put the cup in there and you get something of everything from the fountain machine, so it's a mixture of, of all those things. That's, that's sort of like where, where he was at, where, this, where Servetus was at. Uh, it's like a, the soda fountain mixture. Uh, he was a, a physician and uh, an Anabaptist from Spain. He combined uh, many of the heresies that Bubba had talked about several weeks ago in the early church, um, the heresies that were coming in, and he would combine those things, things like astrology, pantheism, Neoplatonism, Semipelagianism, and Socinianism. He would like mash them. Um, I don't even know how you would describe all that and how you would keep all that straight or make it work. Um, but he was well known as, as a heretic. Um, he also denied the Trinity. He denied the deity of Christ. Um, he was not a Christian. He had already been condemned to death by the Roman Catholic Inquisition. So he, he's escaping. He's, he's going to make his way to Geneva looking for sanctuary. And of course, that's where Calvin is. And somehow Calvin gets word that, that he's coming there. And so Calvin sends word and, and warns him to stay away um, or face the consequences. And at one point, Servetus is recognized in a, in a church service, and later he is arrested, and he's put on trial for blasphemy um, in keeping with Leviticus 24.16. Again, this is not what we would do today with this passage of Scripture, but that's what they were doing. Leviticus 24.16, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. Um, and some believe um, Calvin was the prosecutor in the case, but he wasn't. Uh, some believe that he was the judge in the case. He was not. He was called as a witness by the prosecution. Um, ultimately, Servetus is found guilty and sentenced to burn at the stake. Um, Calvin pleaded for a more painless execution by beheading, but he wasn't listened to, and Servetus was burned at the stake on October 27, 1553. Um, and so this has been used over the centuries to sort of discredit Calvin, um, his, his involvement in this. Um, based on the times they were living in, Servetus would have, he would have received the same trial, the same sentence, 
Um, no matter which place he would have gone in once, once he was found, this is what would have happened at the time. That's what, that's what they did at the time. I'm not justifying. I'm saying that's what, that's what they did. Um, there was nowhere in that time where people had what we call freedom of religion. Like, we can't, can't hardly grasp the idea of this, you know. Um, it wasn't, I mean, it was hard, but it wasn't a shock then for people to have this happen or to see this happen. But for us, it would be an extreme shock in our day and age, in our culture. Um, but they, they didn't understand freedom of religion in the sense that we do. So, anyway, this event is used to discredit Calvin and his work, and all of his work. Yeah, question. Well, Anabaptists are, I can't tell you about all their theology. They, they would be considered in the group of the churches that came out of the Reformation. Though they differ in a lot of ways, they would hold to some parts of Reformed teaching. Um, but Anabaptists, I think, also had a sort of a violent uh, sect to them. Um, they didn't all think the same way. But he, so he was a part of that movement, the Anabaptist movement, which, which came out of the, the Reformation as well. Um, like I say, I'm not sure about all their theology. I haven't heard that one. Um, I think they, if I understand it right, they, and maybe Bubba can speak to this, but um, one of the things that they they rejected was infant baptism. Um, they, would, they would actually believe how we believe in, in the believer's baptism. Um, I don't know if you have anything else to add about Anabaptists. Yeah, they wouldn't, yeah, whether they would say it that way or not, they wouldn't, have, they wouldn't accept infant baptism as, as of any use. Yeah. yeah, Anabaptist comes from the Greek word anabaptizo, which literally means to baptize again. Yeah. So, and they totally reject infant baptism. Of infants, yeah. Is well, there something else? Th- I don't want to open up the can. <laughs> we don't have to open up the can. <laughs> um, so, anyway, through all of this, of course, um, yeah, another question. I think it's I think it's the opposite of what you're thinking. There there was too much involvement by the state government. Um, and that was kind of the the case everywhere at that time. There was seemed to always be a mixture of the church and the state. Like there was always this connection, um, and so it's no matter where he would have gone. I mean, there may have been somewhere, but probably no matter where he went, he would have gotten the same kind of trial and the same kind of sentence. Yeah. Sorry. One thing to keep in mind is, uh, you know, let, let's draw a comparison between Jan Hus and Servetus. Hus was burned at the stake. Servetus was burned at the stake. Why was Hus burned at the stake? Because he claimed that there was no authority over a believer other than the scriptures and God, and he rejected the authority of the Pope. Why was Servetus burned at the stake? because he rejected fundamental doctrines of the church and was considered a heretic and would have been considered a heretic whether Catholic, Greek Orthodox, Protestant, anything. Now, I'm not saying heretics should be burned at the stake, but he was rejecting fundamental tenets of Christianity, specifically the deity of Christ. I mean, he, as a Socinian, believed that 
Christ was not the Logos, or that Christ, that the Son of God didn't even exist until he was born as a man, that there was no eternally existent Son of God. So it didn't matter whether he just happened to end up in, in Zurich. People in Rome or London or Berlin, you know, would have had the same reaction. He was challenging the deity of Christ, the fundamental tenet of the faith, in effect, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and is God. So I'm not justifying burning him at the stake. I'm saying the, the distinction, though, is that Huss was executed by the church because he was challenging the authority of the church. Servetus was executed because he was rejecting fundamental tenets of the faith, essential tenets of the faith that even Catholics would have found ob objectionable. Plus, he was mixing in, as a, again, as a Socinian, he's mixing in all sorts of, uh, what's the word I want to use, pagan teachings like astrology and things like that. So he was just, he, he was going to, there's a reason he, he left Spain, let's put it that way. He was, he was going to get it no matter where he went, and he thought maybe he could get a little more of a liberal uh, a reception in Switzerland where they were reforming, but he, when the things that he was espousing was not going to be well-received anywhere that he went. Well, he, he was considered a, an enemy of the state. So the canton of Geneva, were the, they were the ones who found him threatening to the, the, you know, the public health. And so he was executed because he was a threat to what they considered the, you know, the, the good of the state. Yes. So... Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think that was an important point that even with all the differences between the Reformers and the Roman Catholic Church, you know, both sides would have given the same sentence. That's how he would have been viewed by, by everyone. Uh, he, was, he broke that much from, from biblical doctrine. Um, but again, not to justify burning someone at the stake. <laughs> uh, you know, we live in a time where people talk about Calvinism, and probably much of what people talk about isn't even what Calvin taught, or it's a great, at a minimum, a great distortion of what he taught. Um, and I think people can have a conversation about what Calvin should or shouldn't have done in the Servetus incident, um, and you can even agree that the sentence for this, this guy as a heretic should have been maybe excommunication, um, but Calvin didn't have control over the process. Um, and I was, I was reading it, um, one author, Kurt Daniel, he wrote uh, this about uh, this situation. He said, modern opponents of Reformed theology use the Servetus incident to discredit Calvinism. This is illogical. Should we also deny the Trinity because Calvin taught Trinitarianism? and Servetus did not, should, should we deny justification by faith also? Um, so he's asking these questions, like there's all this teaching, all this truth that's out there, and so this incident takes place, and now everybody wants to just throw away all of that. And in my estimation, that's a bit like saying that David had nothing to say because he sinned with Bathsheba um, and had Uriah killed, or like we should throw out most of the New Testament, because Paul stood there while Stephen was stoned, and, um, and then he went about ravaging the church himself uh, in persecution. So it, it does seem illogical. Um, you know, men sin. Uh, as we talk about reformers and what happened back then, none of this is to say these were perfect people or sinless people or they should be put on a pedestal. 
as such. Um, that's not what's going on. What we're acknowledging is the, the contributions of believers throughout history um, in the church and the impact that it has had on the church. So I just want to clear that up. We don't, we don't want you to take any of this to be that um, these men are somehow perfect like we wouldn't with Paul or David. You know, none of us would claim those guys were perfect. Sometimes we can sort of treat them that way, and we've, you know, um, but Paul himself said that he was the chief of sinners. Um, so that's not what we're doing here. We sin, right? Men sin. They sinned. Luther sinned. Calvin sinned. Um, perhaps it would be better if people disagree or agree with Luther's theology or Calvin's theology uh, based on biblical grounds and not on a, a controversy that took place or some incident that he was involved in, um, as bad as it may be. And like I said, you can have a conversation about what he should or shouldn't have done. Um, but we don't just throw out biblical truth uh, because someone, someone sinned. Um, and, and then we try to compare things then, how things were then, to how we do things now. And there's no comparison. Yeah, question. Biblical doctrine? Well, no, I know what you're saying, right? And, and we wouldn't want to praise them. And I know you're not suggesting we praise them in the sense that they deserve some sort of praise. But, yeah, it's, you know, we, we should not throw out, you know, biblical teaching because, I mean, if we threw out all biblical teaching because someone was a sinner, you might as well not even come here and listen to sermons or anything like that. Right? True. True, but we are, we are to judge sin and sinful behavior. We're just not to be hypocritical judges, right? right. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, good point. Um, so Calvin died on May 27th, 1564. He was only 55 years old. Um, and he had requested there be no grave marker. And I can pretty much guarantee you that he would, he would hate it that people even utter the phrase Calvinism or something like that. Uh, just like I think Luther would be the same way, that he, he probably wouldn't like the fact that there's such a thing as Lutheranism, right? These were not men that wanted glory for themselves or attention for themselves. They wanted the authority of Scripture, the supremacy of Christ, um, the truth about salvation. They wanted those things to be in the forefront, not themselves. Um, and so, but these are names that people have given to these things over the years, right? Uh, they're, they're names that people give to sort of refer to all that they taught. So Lutheranism, you would understand, oh, that comes from the teachings of Martin Luther. Calvinism, oh, that comes from the teachings of Calvin. But we also have to keep in mind that over time, just like has been throughout history, people drift, right? I probably, if Luther and Calvin were alive today, they'd be pretty upset with the direction the church has gone in their names. Uh, but that's what happens, right? People, we twist things, we distort things, time goes by, people forget, um, and so I think they would not be happy with, with how their names have been used over the years and attached to things, though they would want what they believe to be solid biblical teaching to, to last, right? Because they believe it to be true. Um, there are doctrines that the Reformers differed on in some instances, but many that they did, they did agree on, which are foundational to the Reformation of the church. Um, they've carried over to what we even believe in our church uh, to this day. Um, the Protestant churches still believe these. They, they all played a part in recovering biblical truth, uh, in bringing light out of darkness. Calvin was not a heretic or a crazy person. He was a theologian and a prolific writer and preacher. He dedicated his life to preaching and teaching the glory and sovereignty of God. 
even though people often uh, reduce his legacy to, to his points on the sovereignty of God and salvation, he contributed so much more than that. Um, it is said that he wrote more per year than most Christians read in a year. And, and he did this for a lifetime. He wrote commentaries on almost the whole Bible. He wrote on the church, sacraments, predestination, sin, life after death, the French confession of faith, uh, poem, hymns, and, and a lot more. Um, according to Kurt Daniel, author Kurt Daniel, he says, he preached at least five times a week and lectured in theology almost every day. His sermons are masterpieces of expository preaching, and his theology was evangelical and Protestant. Um, I can't imagine preaching five times a week. <laughs> I don't preach that often, but it takes a lot <laughs> to prepare a sermon. So he's not the only one. There are many preachers throughout history that, that did this much and, and worked this hard that God has gifted them to do, and it's a pretty amazing accomplishment. <laughs> yeah, very busy. Um, also, most of his sermons are still in print today. He wrote, also wrote over 4,000 letters that he would send to other theologians, to uh, Christians uh, suffering under persecution, um, to monarchs and, and others. And it's important for us to remember that Calvin agreed with the Apostles' Creed, with the Nicene Creed, and these are things you know, Bubba had talked about earlier. And, and in fact, identifying that we would really be considered Nicene Christians, right? Um, and so these are things that Calvin held to. Uh, and the five solas of the Reformation uh, that we mentioned last week, that Scripture alone is the authority for the church, and that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Right? He believed in these things. He believed in the infallibility, the, the sufficiency, the inerrancy of Scripture, um, he was all about the sovereignty and glory of God. Um, and he said also, John Calvin said, For what is more consonant with faith than to recognize that we are naked of all virtue, in order to be clothed by God, that we are empty of all good, to be filled by Him, that we are slaves of sin, to be freed by Him, blind, to be illuminated by Him, lame, to be made straight by Him, weak, to be sustained by Him, to take away from us all occasion for glorying, that he alone may stand forth gloriously, and we glory in him. Also, he said, For until men recognize that they owe everything to God, that they are nourished by his fatherly care, that he is the author of their very good, that they should seek nothing beyond him, they will never yield him willing service. Nay, unless they establish their complete happiness in him, they will never give themselves truly and sincerely to him. So these are things that these people, these reformers were willing to defy the church on. They were willing to go to their deaths for, um, not for their own glory. And so what about the so-called five points of Calvinism? Well, so there is a thing called the Synod of Dort, right? This is a council that was set up to sort of rectify a dispute between Arminianism and Calvinism. Um, and keep in mind, this is after Calvin's death, okay? Um, and this was in 1618 in the Netherlands. And Arminians, or they were sometimes called Remonstrants, they were followers of Jacob Arminius, uh, and his teaching emphasized uh, man's free will in salvation. They refuted the reformed teaching of Calvin. And followers of Jacob Arminius, they wrote five articles um, of remonstrance or strong protest, right? In, in 1610, they wrote that, and that's only a year after Arminius died. They disagreed with five areas of John Calvin's biblical teaching on salvation. And so they came up with five, their five points of disagreement, which were conditional predestination, universal unlimited atonement, total depravity or deprivation, grace is necessary but resistible, the possibility of falling from grace. Okay, those are 
These are five points that they, they disagreed with Calvin. And so this is what came out first. Um, and so this, the Synod of Dort was put in place to sort of fix this or come to a conclusion about, about these things. Um, Calvinists, or sometimes considered counter-remonstrants, were followers of John Calvin, of course. Um, they emphasized God's sovereignty and salvation. And this, remember, this took place almost 60 years after Calvin died um, and one year after um, Arminius died. And the five points of Calvinism only came about to refute the points that the followers of Arminius had come up with. Okay, some people think Calvin's points came first and, and it was the other way around, but that's not the case. Um, and so ultimately, after this, the Synod of Dort, the five articles of the Remonstrance were condemned um, in 1619. And now I have to apologize for something in, in your notes. I made a really big mistake, okay? So I want you guys to make sure you clear this up. So I put the five points of Calvinism in the wrong order, and it was too late for me to change it once I printed everything out. So I have single-handedly changed the famous handy little acrostic forever, okay? It used to be called Tulip. I've made it Ultip, okay? So... Uh, I apologize about that, but it should be, the, the order of them should uh, be such that you could see the acrostic um, tulip in them. And again, Calvin didn't come up with tulip, okay? This is way after his death. But anyway, those five points that were given to refute the five points of Arminianism were um, total depravity, okay, there's the T, uh, which is, wasn't far off from the Armenian view, anyway, of depravity. So total depravity, limited atonement, unconditional election, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Okay? So these things, there's no way we could do justice to these things in, in the time that we have here. This would take, and perhaps at some point we can do that. We can take the time to look at the scriptures just on these areas and on both sides, and, and have a comparison. Uh, that would be fun to do at some point. Um, but there's no way we can do all that today and go into all of these points um, of disagreement. But ultimately, the, the Synod of Dort rejected the Arminius points uh, for what is known as the five points of Calvinism. Sometimes these are known as the doctrines of grace. You may have may heard that term somewhere. Um, but you know, some of the ideas here basically um, are like with the last one, perseverance of the saints. This is about security and salvation, uh, where the Arminianists would believe that you can um, fall from grace or lose your salvation. Um, Calvinism would teach that if you're saved, you can't lose that. Christ is keeping your salvation. Um, you don't lose it. You don't walk away from it if you're truly saved. So the idea of the perseverance of the saints, that in the end, those who are truly saved are saved and will be saved. Um, again, there's a lot under each one of these points. There's a lot of explanation. There's a lot to clarify biblically. Um, so we don't have the time to just, you know, to do justice for it today. Um, but if there was a question about these things, then we could take a question about them. Um, many people think that Again, like I said, that Calvin wrote those five points, but it was his followers um, years after he died. And these were, again, meant to refute the Arminian, Arminius points. Um, and we have to remember, these are just a way of summarizing the biblical concepts that Calvin taught. Right? These, these short, sort of short, pithy statements are just a way of summarizing a much larger body of work. Um, and, and so... To think that you can have a productive discussion about Calvinism just with those points without the rest of it would be very difficult, I think, uh, uh, beyond the ability to do. So, anyway, they were just a summary that, that they came up with. And so I think, you know, over the years, many people have misunderstood, changed, or gone beyond what Calvin taught, and, and in some cases have cause what I believe is unnecessary animosity and division in the body of Christ. Um, Calvin continues to 
teach and impact people today through his writings and his sermons, um, as those things are available, his commentaries. So uh, he, he continues to have an impact. And um, so from the Protestant Reformation, we, which was a split from the Roman Catholic Church and from Eastern Orthodoxy, we've seen different groups organize. Lutheranism, Presbyterianism, Anabaptists, Reformed, which also has a couple of branches, uh, Methodists, which will we'll come later, we'll talk about that, um, Amish, Mennonites, Baptists, uh, a lot of different groups, right? And some of these sprang up from out of one of the other ones of these. Um, and they all hold to some or most of the foundations and the foundational teaching of the time of the Reformation, like the authority of Scripture and salvation by grace through faith in Christ, etc. Some would hold on to parts of uh, Roman Catholic teaching, but reject others. So you'd have some of these groups that you might say, well, they're very similar still to that. They didn't completely reject everything, but they rejected some of it. And we talked briefly about some of it, um, like infant baptism, those kind of things. They might have held on to it, but understood something, understood it to be something different. Um, aspects of communion would be another example. Um, there are varying takes on that and what's going on there. Um, and some of those groups would have maybe even held more closely to what Roman Catholicism taught, but rejected other aspects of it. Um, and perhaps some areas of tradition as well. Um, and this, of course, was a work in progress because much of this was new, right? They had been under the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church for so long, and without the scriptures in their hands, they're left to see the Pope as their authority. And so whatever the Pope said is what you believed. It's, it's what was taught. Um, you weren't getting it from the scriptures. You're getting it from the head of the church, the Pope, which uh, we know that was rejected by the Reformers. He was not the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. Um, so this would be an ongoing sort of recovery of, of the Bible into the hands of the people and biblical teachings. Um, and these days, though, there are many branches of Protestant groups who at one time were committed, like the Reformers, to the authority of the Word of God. They've nonetheless strayed, drifted away from the Scripture again, um, this is always the danger in the church. It's always the danger for Christians is drifting away from holding to the word of God. And so we can see it these days in different denominations. We can see some, some of these have completely fallen away from biblical truth and embraced all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, and there's been more splits in these dom denominations over the years, whereas some groups want to veer off other groups say, no, we want to stick with um, the teaching uh, that we've always stuck with. And so you have more splits. And so you have different, even different versions of Lutheranism, different versions of Presbyterianism. We have different versions of Baptists. Um, and typically because something's changing. Leadership is moving away from Scripture and others are saying, no, we don't want to do that. And they don't change. So off they go and they split into something else. Not great, but... That's the result of sinful human beings uh, over the years. And, and when we don't hold tightly to the Word of God, that's what is going to happen. Um, our desire is to remain faithful to the authority and iner inerrancy and sufficiency of Scripture for us. That's what should inform our lives. It should inform our conduct as a church, uh, what we believe about God, what we believe about salvation, and only by God's grace can we do so. As we can see through history, people have, have strayed far from it. So, by God's grace, He will help us to stick with His Word. Um, that's right. Absolutely. He gave us the Holy Spirit to help us with that, for sure. So, any other comments, Bubba, or other questions? Uh. I just think it's worth mentioning the name Ulrich Zwingli. Go ahead. Uh, oh, yeah, sorry. Before you say that, real quick. 
I did include in your notes there, there's a, a few other notable people there. I won't go over all of them, but you'll see them at the end there. Philip Melanchthon, Zwingli, um, Tyndale, and Cranmer. So go ahead and say what you're going to say. Uh, Zwingli was really the the third man of the, the Reformation in a lot of ways. He, you know, with Luther and Calvin, he, he was also uh, an important shaper of the direction of the Reformation. And, and we uh, inherited a lot of things from him, such a, uh, he, he really crystallized the approach to Scripture that we tend to follow today, that we should be following. Uh, just in terms of the whole concept of scripture informing on scripture and and things like that. Not that Calvin didn't or, or Luther didn't, but he was the one that really crystallized that as a uh, as, as a method of exegesis. And uh, we we tend to follow him in in terms of the sacraments as well. And he was really the father of reformed uh, one of the fathers of reformed theology. So I, I think it's worth mentioning yeah. Zwingli as well. And incidentally, he's the only one of the reformers to die in battle. Right. So he uh, he was fighting for Zurich, not uh, y- you know in a theological sense, but just in a political sense. There was a a bit of a spat, and he died in a in a battle uh, for that. Yeah. Other questions before we close? All right. Well, let's close the prayer today. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, again for our time today to um, look into these things in church history. Um, and Lord, we, we would ask that you would be gracious to us. Um, or we, of course, no one desires to veer away from the truth. Or as Christians, Lord, we, we want to believe you. We want to believe what your word says. We want to trust it, live by it. We pray, Lord, that you would, through your Holy Spirit, help us uh, to be faithful to your word. And Lord, where we differ, where we disagree, may we do so patiently uh, with, with teaching, Lord, with going to the scriptures. Um, and Lord, may you, through your Spirit, teach us. Lord, any place in our lives where we are in error about your word, that you would reveal that to us so that we can turn from that error and believe what is true. Um, And we ask that you would do that continually in our lives. Uh, Lord, any times when we may be exposed to something that is not of your word, and and perhaps be tempted to to grab on to that, Lord, that you would, through your word or through other believers, reveal to us that it's error so that we can turn from it and and stay faithful to your word, Lord. Because your word is truth. Uh, It is absolute truth. It is what you use in our lives to sanctify us, and we're so grateful for for how you work in our lives. We're grateful that you're patient with us. We're grateful, Lord, that through Christ, our sins are forgiven. Um, And Lord, though we we tarry here in this world, we look forward to um, our Savior coming for us. And um, Lord, may that day come quickly. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.